0: Decoding Cyberspace is brought to you by the SGAC Space and Cybersecurity Project Group, mobilising the creativity and vigour of youth in advancing humanity through the peaceful uses of outer space. Welcome to episode 5 of Decoding Cyberspace, a show dedicated to exploring the frontiers of information, communications, technology, and cybersecurity across the final frontier. On this episode, we are delighted to welcome special guest Dr. Bledin Bowen, Lecturer in International Relations, Space Policy, Warfare Expert at the University of Leicester. Dr. Bowen has previously worked as a Lecturer in Defense Studies at King's College London and a Research Scholar at George Washington University. He has recently published a book titled, War in Space, Strategy, Space Power, Geopolitics, discussing the impact of military space technology on terrestrial geopolitics. Dr. Bowen, welcome to Decoding Cyberspace, and thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule to join us today.
1: Hi there, thanks very much for having me on.
0: Firstly, could you help brief our audience more about your professional background, particularly your experiences leading to your current role as a lecturer at the University of Leicester?
1: Uh, Well, um, at the uh, University of Leicester, I'm very much uh, from the uh, politics and international relations background, so um, I'm not a scientist, I'm not an engineer, Um, I'm terrible at mathematics, uh, to to put it mildly, Uh, so my background is in the humanities and the arts, and I studied international uh, politics at the university uh, in Aberystwyth uh, in in Wales uh, for my undergraduate master's and PhD. Uh, And um, uh, as the years went on, I developed uh, an expertise in uh, war studies and um, contemporary military strategy. And it was through that that I um, became more interested in uh, military technology uh, in space and how um, the US military utilised space systems for its modern way of warfare and its use in in modern wars. And um, that basically then got me into space properly And of course, did my PhD then on military thinking about um, outer space and space
0: technology's role in modern warfare. Hmm. So which research areas are you currently focusing upon and where do you see yourself in five years? Um, So at the moment, um, as as you mentioned in the introduction, I've
1: just got the book out and that is about space power theory. So I like to think that I've got the uh, conceptual theoretical elements sorted at this point. And um, I want to move my research onto more empirical matters or um, more historically orientated stuff about military space and um, intelligence activities to do with space systems. So I hope that I can in time uh, inform my theoretical, existing theoretical research with more empirical information. Also moving on to more direct policy relevant areas as well, as opposed to the theory, which uh, gives me a useful grounding in most things to do with um, politics and space, but engaging more with um, ongoing uh, policy and governance issues in space, is definitely an area I'll I'll be looking to do more in as the years go on. However, primary documents can be a challenge to find in my field at times, especially if it's anywhere near the last 20 years
0: of activity. Hmm. So moving along from this, what is it about outer space which excites you personally? Where did your interest initially stem from? So outer space in general, I grew up with Star
1: Wars as a kid um, I, I I wore out those vhs tapes, tapes of the original trilogy as a kid uh, grew up with Star Trek the next the next generation as well um Picard is the best um, star trek uh, captain and um i I guess my my interest in space politics came as a result of my degree education, so i didn 't really have much to do with space and I'd never really been part of any. Um, sort of space community or anything like that growing up. I've come into it very much from an outsider's perspective and and very much from an outsider's special specialism as well, given that there are so few academics who do space policy or or anything about space from humanities and the arts, um, especially in, in, in the UK. So, um, yeah, beyond Star Wars, the occasional documentary about astrophysics, um, that, that's sort of all what, what my interest in space stems from, but, but not much else. As I did all right in physics in school and I liked learning about the planets, but beyond the, that basic level of education up to the age of 16, I pretty much abandoned the sciences.
0: Hmm. So, given developments within the area of space tourism, if given the opportunity, would you like to travel to outer space?
1: Not at all. <laughs> um, if um, given the the current state of technology, um, no, it's it's not going to be a, a pleasant experience, and um, they never t- tell you about the smell on the International Space Station until you get there. Apparently, so um, I'm I'm not interested in doing that unless it's as easy as airline travel. Then maybe uh, I would like to see uh, Earth from space, but not given the um, the, the current Uh, trials that you have to go through to get to space.
0: (laughs) Indeed. So moving along, how has the nature of geopolitics in space changed since the Cold War era? Has there been an increased or decreased amount of competition in space over the past several decades? Um, That's that's an
1: interesting question and it depends a lot on what you think um, geopolitics in space was during the Cold War era. And um, there's a lot of talk about the so-called new space age from certain quarters, and they emphasise the more democratic or um, and the more commercial nature of space, the space economy and space politics today. However, I, I, I tend to push against uh, that sort of episodic or era-based approach to recent history, because you can see a lot of the things that are going on today already were happening in the 1970s and the 1980s uh, in terms of several space powers or several countries having their own access to space and their own significant space projects. Commercial companies are not entirely new in space either. So it's, it's more of a continuum and there was no big break at the end of the cold, or at least from Western economies, plus Japan and, and South Korea and India. The collapse of the Soviet Union, of course, extremely important, Um, And, yeah, the opening up of the Russian space sector to Western capital interests. But, you know, beyond that, I would say it's been more continuity since 1991 to today, really. And um, the commercial sector today is there's not really a self-sustaining private economy in space. It's still underwritten by public spending by countries around the world, not least the United States. Um, There's a lot of fuss made about space sets, for example. As a commercial company, yet it's taking money from the same military industrial complex that uh, Lockheed Martin and Boeing have done for generations. Uh, and, you know, and, and United Launch Alliance, um, their joint launch efforts are they're, they're taking government contracts from the United States. That's where they make the money, not from the private economy. They're doing it from US public spending on space. So... I so I, I, I push back on the idea that there's there's a big difference um, it's more continuity and incremental changes uh, we'll we'll see what happens with um, small satellites for example that's an interesting area where you might see some proper private economy develop possibly in lower orbits but uh, we'll 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 see about that um in terms of increased uh, competition um in this space or decreased competition um it, it comes and goes it's it's like the tides uh, Whether the you know countries can find more opportunities to cooperate or not in space as a reflection of terrestrial politics. Uh, one constant of course is that the United States wants nothing to do with China since 1989 in space, um, even though that China cooperated um, a lot with the United States in the 1970s and the 1980s when um, Mao and Nixon opened up China to the United States and, and the Western global economy. So um, things can change, but uh, they are very much part of wider geopolitical changes on Earth. Space is not somewhere you go to, to try and change politics on Earth. Space follows the political headwinds on Earth, rather.
0: <clears throat> Absolutely. So consequently, what is the concept of geopolitics surrounding international cyber governance and policy?
1: So this is um, yeah, an interesting question, also difficult because it's going beyond my um, actual area of expertise. Uh, I'm no um, cyber governance expert, um, but it's I think fractious is is the best word to describe it based on what reading I have done around this, um, and I think there's a lot of interesting parallels um, that could be made with so cyber governance and and space governance uh, in that. Um, You have a lot of shared platforms and infrastructure, but very little norms uh, and treaties as to how to govern them, um, how to prevent um, bad behaviour. Not necessarily hostile behaviour, but perhaps bad or selfish behaviour. And I think um, the ITU as well is the closest thing we have to any global governance body in, in space and it's not particularly encouraging for the future of geopolitics because the ITU still effectively operates on a first come first served basis in terms of allocating spectrum and um geostationary orbital slots so uh, again you you see um those global governance attitudes being a reflection of prevailing geopolitical headwinds and in many same with many other areas you might see a greater schism develop between um, a more pro-China camp perhaps and a more pro-US camp um, and um, you know in, in the United Kingdom for example we just had the um, massive U-turn on, uh, on Huawei uh, building 5G infrastructure in the UK um, with ongoing uh, discussion in, in Parliament now about uh, Huawei's activities on behalf of the Chinese state uh, which is not really a surprise to anyone. So, um, so I, I guess it's not very—it's not an optimistic um, state of affairs. Uh, it's not particularly, um, yeah, it's, it's not not particularly coherent or, or harmonious at this point. But things can change, and if we get a new president in the United States uh, in the next couple of months, then um, who knows what trajectory things will be on them?
0: Absolutely. So, just moving along, concerning ongoing attempts by the U.S. to promote bilateral engagement with um, several states under the Artemis Accords. What impact do you foresee this as having upon the international order?
1: Yeah, so this is an interesting one. Um, I was, I think I was pleasantly surprised when I saw this come out in the news uh, for the first time. And um, I, I guess it's a way of forcing the issue. And you know, if the United States actually puts in the money and does what it plans to do with Artemis, which is not the case yet, um, Jim Bridenstine is still struggling to get Congress to give him all the money he wants uh, for NASA to do what they want, especially by the by the t- uh, deadline that they've given themselves. 2024 is a very very optimistic deadline, which I'm not particularly confident that they'll meet, especially uh, with uh, the funding they've gone so far. But at least on on the sort of norms issue, it is it is forcing it, um, and it might actually resolve some practical issues around how do you regulate who can access what on various scientific missions because if we're going to have a busier moon with more robots going around then we do need to start having a better idea of how can we apportion areas of the moon for specific scientific missions and find some consensual way to do that the problem is however is with the Artemis Accords that it'll it'll only it's it's sort of you have to participate um with the United States on this programme really to start having a voice in shaping those accords and they will form um, sort of the ground zero really of how to do stuff on the moon. So I'm not sure what impact it'll have if China and America are still at loggerheads um, in space generally, or or still refuse to do anything major in terms of scientific and civil space cooperation, um, which is a loss for both, I think, because I think they could find areas where they could cooperate. That doesn't necessarily affect security and military and economic areas. So, um, you know, if the Soviets and the Americans could uh, manage to do stuff in space together in the Cold War, China and America could as well. And China and America have that rich history of cooperation from the 1970s and the 1980s. So I'm, I'm, I'm sceptical as to its larger impact on anyone who doesn't work on the Artemis Accords. But if it builds a certain camp uh, around the United States based on those who participate in it, then it might force the issue at a later stage. Although what the outcome of that will be, I don't know. What will be interesting to see as well is that is how the Artemis Accords Um, internal negotiations with foreign partners on the programme will work out because the United States often talks a good game when it comes to multilateralism in space, but in practice, the United States still acts unilaterally all the time, and ESA, the European Space Agency, um, Japan and Russia have had a lot of frustrating episodes with the United States on the International Space Station, and that was based uh, that cooperation was codified in a special treaty. So um so there's there's so the United States at the is talking a good game. Whether it'll uh, live up to the more cooperative multilateral ideals that it espouses in the Artemis Accord in practice remains to be seen. Um it, it may it may well do but given American practice with the International Space Station, um, when Congress decides one year um, to just pull the plug on funding somewhere, then it changes what NASA can do. And then NASA just just changes its behavior without actually telling anyone or even discussing it with international partners beforehand. Uh, that happened a few times on the International Space Station and it's left uh, the Russians, Europeans and Japanese you know, with their hands in the air thinking, what, 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 we had our own plans and now we can't do those. You know, Thanks for telling us um and, and 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 that's after promises as well from the united states that they would behave in a multilateral way as well so um maybe, maybe just uh, <laughs> my pessimistic nature but uh we we'll wait and see as to how genuinely um multilateral the united states behaves in that especially if it is bankrolling most of the effort to um get its robots and people on the moon
0: mm. Absolutely. So there might be some overlap here, but um, where the advancement in space technologies have given rise to a more, more congestive, competitive and contested outer space environment, do you foresee a new space race on the horizon? Does it represent mm-hmm. a serious contending level to the US in space?
1: So the space race is one of my pet peeves in terms of how people use it to describe almost anything that goes on in space today. Um, they're even describing the very small investments by Britain in select areas of the UK space industry as Britain's space race, uh, which is just a little bit silly and um, just just, it's just hyperbole. So um, I, I, I wouldn't really call anything a space race unless you're talking about the actual um, effort of the Soviet Union and the United States uh, to do their firsts in space in the late 1950s and the 1960s. So, and the metaphor of the space race also implies that the different participants are doing very comparable things and also have a clearly defined destination or end goal. I mean, a race has to end, um, there has to be an achievement, there has to be a prize or something at the end. Um, that's not really useful a useful way to try and describe and understand what's going on now. Um, what's going on is that many, many states are using outer space for the purposes of warfare, development and prestige and all of those at the same time and it's difficult to pin down everything they're doing um, in the framings of this other country is doing it, therefore we must do it as well. It's more about the pursuit of security and military power. It's about intelligence. It's about economic development, stimulating terrestrial industries, um, developing your state and economy. And and then you also have some of the prestige projects, like uh, India's Orbiter uh, to Mars, for example. So um, there's a lot of stuff going on in space all at the same time. So it's difficult to to just reduce it really to to quite the... Um, the the clumsy space race uh, metaphor because it implies a very targeted, clear effort to do something specific at the same time, and that there are two sides trying to win that race as well. Well, that's not really how, how it's done. And, and you look at what China's doing, um, at least on its civil space exploration side, it's 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 going at its own pace. It's 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 doing the plans it set out. Twenty years ago, and it 's realizing them now the the space station that 's going up now they first started talking about that twenty years ago um and it 's doing that regardless of what happened with the international space station so it's um and, and there are many important domestic reasons why China's doing those big prestige and big science projects for for their own um sort of internal political consumption rather than just trying to show off to the united states so So I would not call it a space race. Um, and and, and I, I basically eye roll every time I read that in a news headline because it just shows that the people writing it uh, or at least the, the news editor who made the headline doesn't really know what's going on in space because it's part of a much, much bigger project and space is a normal geopolitical environment. Uh, you can't reduce everything that goes on there to a particular competitive aspect um, and and it's a very diverse Environment as well, where loads of different things go on at the same time. So, um, and whether China represents a serious rival, well, China is, is the number two now in terms of space power capability. Uh, when I started studying space politics 10 years ago, Russia was very much a comfortable number two, I would say, in terms of space capability. Now, Ch- China has, has overtaken Russia, I would say, in, in most indices of space power. Um, so, in terms of a serious rival, that is a political question rather than technological or, or economic. Um, so it, it, it depends what you want to use space power for. In terms of rival rivaling economic infrastructure, yes, um, it means many countries now can rely on Chinese information and uh, technological infrastructure. For example, the Beidou navigation system—that's a good alternative to GPS uh, and a good backup as well. Um, There are new um, communications, information, highways that China can now build as well, although it can not compare with the United States in terms of its control of the physical internet infrastructure, of course. But, um, you know, there are opportunities there to reduce dependency on uh, European and American uh, space companies, especially in terms of uh, data and services and broadcasting. So, Yeah, so in terms of an economic rival, um, absolutely, um, there's a real potential for China to start um, reducing the current sort of global dependency on mostly American space infrastructure.
0: Hmm. Certainly. So what would you see as the major geopolitical milestone slash achievement in space over the next decade? For example, whether it be which nation is the first to conceive and birth a person in space or the first nation to establish a lunar colony
1: those are very um optimistic um suggestions for a 10-year time frame um so in, in terms of me achievements um i don't know um in terms of civil space or space exploration it always happens much slower than a lot of the enthusiasts believe so um I, I I I I would dread to think of a birth in space. I mean, what's that? What that woman would have to go through to do that? Because um, it's difficult enough a process on Earth, let alone in space. Um, but in terms of major geopolitical milestones, I don't know in the next ten years, I think if you manage to get any agreement on um, access to um, popular or. Um, Uh, lucrative sites on the moon for scientific uh, missions if you get any sort of agreement on how to apportion access in that regard i think that would be a a major agreement a major achievement any reform at the international telecoms union perhaps um, for governing the allocation of spectrum uh, and geostationary slots because at the moment it's still based on um the old satellite industry model where satellites take a very long time to build uh, and and deploy in low Earth orbit, the small satellite industry is really changing that. It's happening at a much, much faster rate. And the International Telecoms Union needs to uh, keep up with that change uh, and keep up with what domestic um, re- regulatory agencies are doing around the world. So reform of the ITU would be an interesting thing to see in the next 10 years, hopefully to make it more equitable and allow smaller, powers and smaller actors more of a say so that they can compete more effectively with the established giants in space like china europe uh, america russia india and japan Mm so um so just to allow certain countries like in africa who are developing a lot more of their own space industry or buying their own satellites that they can hopefully do more of what they want to do with with the the little resources that they have rather than having to always Uh, seek to carry favour with a large space power sponsor to get their way in the ITU. So those things are far less spectacular than um, people on the moon or anything, but they are far more important because that is how we're using space for everyday services here on Earth um, that um, provide uh, infrastructure for us. So um, the people in space, people on the moon, or even robots, you know, their sideshows, um, their science experiments, their 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 exploration, and their things that uh, really have very bearing on direct geopolitics, um, at least you know for the foreseeable
0: future. Mm. So, consequently, what is your contention on the relevance of the existing space law framework under the Outer Space Treaty? I think with the OST, I think um,
1: people have to be very careful with it in terms of. Um, reopening the can of worms that it managed to close. So the OST was signed um, really by the Soviets and the Americans when they agreed that um, the moon and space really was of marginal military value, so we might as well just codify it to make sure that neither of us waste resources um, were upping each other in terms of military deployments uh, in space on the moon, because the those the Moon, especially and other terrestrial bodies, have extremely little to no economic or military value, and that is still the case today so I've heard a lot of people wanting to revisit certain parts of the o s t or even scrap it altogether um with the aim of producing something better in its place. But I will caution that if you if you tear that up now or start picking it apart, you might end up with destroying the o s t and then have nothing take its place. So I would I would caution uh, people against against that. I think that the better way to go would be to build on the Outer Space Treaty, uh, which is what the Artemis Accord is trying to do. It's it's trying to put into practice the larger principles of the OST because the OST can't be specific, and people criticise it a lot for not saying how uh, private um, companies can access resources or can make money out of those resources. And certain countries with their domestic legislation have gone beyond that and started to make it legal in terms of acquiring resources but not appropriating territory. I think um, countries need to build on the outer space treaty because the OST is not specific. It wasn't designed to outline the rights and wrongs or the legalities of every specific incident that was meant to follow on in subsequent laws, one of which, of course, was the Moon Treaty, which uh, is a failed uh, international treaty. Um, No significant space power signed it uh, or ratified it as well. Um, And um, a couple of the large signatories are trying to find their way out of it as well. Uh, So, uh, And because it's trying to apportion resources in space, uh, and the Moon especially, in a way that uh, is not um, is, is not particularly favourable to them, um, I believe Article 11 is the real sticking point of of uh, the, the Moon Treaty. So I would think that the OST is is good as the basic principles of international law, but it's up to um, other subsequent follow-on treaties then to specify the details, like we already have with the Registration Convention, the Return of Astronauts Treaty, and um, the liability one as well, they were all follow-on treaties that specified much more detailed practical issues. And I can't see why, um, of course, with enough political will, um, you can't have a successful follow-on treaty that tries to outline commercial um, resource extraction rights or something like
0: that um, in uh, with with the Moon. Absolutely. So finally, to finish off, if you were to become the UN Secretary General, how would you work to promote international peace and security in outer space?
1: Yeah, if I had that question, uh, if I have had that answer, um, <laughs> I guess I wouldn't be in this job. Um, I, I, I I don't know. That is a very very difficult uh, question, um, and I mean it, it does presuppose a lot more power with the United Nations than. I would uh, give it because it is very much subject to the headwinds provided by uh, the member states. Um, However for me the best thing that the UN would be good for would be to use it as a forum for continuing conversation to try and get something that comes out of it at the other end um, which is what the British are trying to do now with the new uh, responsible uses of space uh, initiative trying to use the UN General Assembly to at least outline a shared uh, perception of the risk to outer space operations and uh, satellite infrastructure and and try to get consensus on that before finding the solutions. So um, I, I guess another part of, I guess, what I'd like to do at the UN if I was calling the shots would be to educate more people about the real nature of outer space activities. Um I ban people from mentioning the word militarization and weaponization. Those two words um and terms, they are extremely um misleading in the way that they are used by most people to discuss um peace and security and, and, and military affairs in, in outer space. People still say that um for example, the new US Space Force is militarizing space. That's utter nonsense, because space has always been militarized. Space has always been a military realm. Um, the, the early satellites from the Soviets and the Americans, they were first and foremost military projects designed to prove the ability to launch nuclear weapons into space and also to deploy spy satellites. Ev- almost every major country's space uh, sector is involved in the military industrial complex and are intertwined with military needs and security and intelligence needs as well. The the biggest companies in space uh, today provide loads of services to various militaries. So space has always been a militarised realm. In terms of weaponization, which people usually think about uh, in terms of putting weapons in orbit, uh, and therefore you, you have then the risk of space warfare and all the consequences of that, you don't need to put weapons in space to have that risk. We already have those risks. And there 's no special threshold to putting weapons in space it 's not the end of the world if you put a few weapons in space and not doing it doesn 't really make the world a much better place either so it 's not got that uh, world changing quality that people ascribe to it with those words so I think um ed- educating more people about the reality of outer space operations and how the words militarization and weaponization are red herrings to discussing the actual issues about outer space, which is we are dependent on space for military uh, and economic purposes and to try and ban uh, or to stop any sort of military competition or uh, rivalries or threats there is, is is trying to fight the tides. Um, you have to find very specific areas to try and reduce the worst manifestations or even unnecessary military competition. So um, space-based nuclear weapons is an, is an obvious one, which are already outlawed as a success. Um, You know, there's no real need to put weapon, nuclear weapons in orbit. So that's good. That's a specific thing not to do in terms of curbing um, military uh, space technology rather than banning or condemning all military space activities by using the word militarization. Find very specific things to try and control. Um, And one of the problems of the Russian and Chinese PPWT, of course, is that it is very, very broad and difficult to verify. Um, you have to find more specific things. And one of the drives that's interesting in terms of arms control in space now is talk of a um, test ban treaty for kinetic anti-satellite weapon systems. So that's very targeted, very precise. You can monitor it pretty easily. Um, finding the more achievable specific things is uh, one thing I'd like to see, but that would happen only as a result of educating more people and more diplomats about space because there is a lot of ignorance out there about the reality of space activities today beyond the. Science and exploration.
0: Awesome. Well, thank you again, Dr. Bowen, for your unique insights into geopolitics, strategy, and space power. We look forward to expanding on these topics with you again in the Thank future. you very much for having me. And for our curious listeners out there eager to learn more about geopolitics and international relations in outer space, please make sure to keep an eye out for Dr. Bowen's new book. War in space, strategy, space power, geopolitics. We thank you for joining us today and we look forward to joining us again for our next episode of Decoding Cyberspace. <laughs>